If you're enjoying today's podcast, please join Father James Martin and Jamie Marisotis for a discussion on human work, spirituality, and empathy during their virtual live event, Finding Spiritual Meaning in Human Work, on February 14th. Sign up at luminafoundation.org slash events. Power relationships in El Salvador had operated on like a three like a three-legged chair, the oligarchy that controls the wealth, the military that imposes it and keeps it that way, and the church that operates to keep people satisfied. So the church serves that oligarchy and military by saying, God will reward your sufferings when you die. And so now, all of a sudden, in the late 60s, the Catholic Church is really involved in working towards land reform, saying, no, actually, Jesus was serious. Like He meant there's enough food to go around. And everyone has a right to full human development, to full existence. That's huge. That's transformational. To the Salvadoran oligarchy and the military that it controlled, they're like, what is this? We thought you kept those people on their knees so that we could go shopping in Miami. Um, and so it's an incredible threat. It's this feeling of how dare the church turn against us. You're supposed to be here coming to our fancy dinners and baptizing our children and thanking us for endowing the beautiful cathedral. And how dare you be talking about poor people and their access to land. And so the reprisals are, are really vicious. In the late 1970s, social and political tensions in El Salvador erupted into a brutal civil war. Archbishop Oscar Romero was shot while celebrating Mass in San Salvador. He had been speaking out against the economic injustices in his country and proclaiming an empowered reading of the Gospels that resonated with the suffering people. It not only challenged the political powers of the day, but the religious status quo. Romero became a household name, not just in his home country, but throughout the world. He was lifted up as a martyr, a champion for social justice, and an icon of liberation theology. In 2018, Pope Francis canonized him a saint. But Romero was not the first Catholic priest to be killed for standing in solidarity with the poor. Just three years earlier, driving on a rural, dusty road between Aguilares and El Paisnal, a Jesuit priest named Rutilio Grande was shot and killed by El Salvador's government security forces. I don't know myself why. He is a lesser known figure, and that's one of the reasons why I'm trying to pay attention to him, plus my own love for the man, if you will, for my own cultural history and family history. But his story is a remarkable and beautiful story and it deserves to be told. In this special deep dive episode of Inside the Vatican, we're looking at the story of Rutilio Grande through the eyes of his friends, colleagues, scholars, and living relatives. Uh, he was born in a poor uh, town of El Salvador uh, in a dysfunctional family. He never claims to be anything more than what he is, and he loves where he comes from. He never forgets the poor little place of El Paisnal. The name Rutilio Grande is fitting because he was big, and his wisdom was even bigger. 
we'll revisit the political, economic, and social conditions that surrounded Grande, and how he became the first priest killed in the lead-up to El Salvador's civil war. The violence that's happening in El Salvador in the, throughout the 1970s, of which Rutilio is eventually a victim, it's not indiscriminate. It's not wild and mad. It's really specific. Finally, we'll get into why Rutilio Grande is on the path to sainthood and what his beatification January 22nd means for the church today. When you see that there is no justice, the church at least is saying these uh, men were assassinated. For us, these men are saints. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. You chaired the history commission that prepared the way for his canonization. So you've done a lot of looking through his his documents, his writings, his personal things. What stands out to you about Rutilio's character? I don't know. <laughs> it's a normal priest, a normal Jesuit. An ordin- uh, maybe this is the great thing. I am Rodolfo Cardenal. Father Rodolfo Cardinal is a Central American Jesuit who was born in Nicaragua, but has spent most of his life in El Salvador. He teaches church history at the Jesuit University in San Salvador, commonly referred to as the UCA, and is the director of the Monsignor Romero Center there. He's also the author of the definitive biography of Rutilio Grande. So I knew him at first in the seminary. Rodolfo's earliest memory of meeting Rutilio was when he was in his seminary formation. I knew his parish uh, work, and and then I was in the state when when he he was assassinated, so I wasn't in El Salvador. But what first drew Rutilio to the priesthood and the Jesuits? To piece that story together, we have to go back to Rutilio's early childhood. He came from a poor family in El País Nal. The youngest of seven children, his parents divorced, and Rutilio was left to the care of his mother until he was four when she died. Then his devout grandmother and older brother became responsible for his upbringing. He lost his mother and his father went away to Honduras to work in the uh, banana plantation there. So he, he was raised by his grandmother and, uh, and, and a good mother, both of them. And these two women were very close to the church. As a child, Rutilio had a love for the Mass. So here he is, like five years old, and he decides he wants to celebrate Mass. So he takes these seeds that come from one of the trees that look like coasts, they're circular, and he would arrange for a Mass, and he had these bells that I guess he borrowed or was given from St. Joseph's Church in the town there. And then he would enlist his brothers and friends to help him. And people would say, La Misa de Rutilio is taking place because they could hear the bells. This is Sister Ana Maria Pineda. I'm a Sister of Mercy. I have been on the faculty here at Santa Clara University for 20 plus years. I'm originally from El Salvador. I was born there, but at a very early age, my parents and my brother came to the Mission District of San Francisco. Ana Maria is also a distant relative of Rutilio Grande. Okay, so what what does that make you? Cousins? No, he's like my uncle-in-law. And my 
been in the family. My father, I think, lived across the street from the Grande family. So my aunt married Trutilio's older brother. And then another aunt of mine married a Grande um, cousin. She's also gotten to know him better through a tremendous amount of research and two books that she's written about the martyr priest. Her latest title, Rutilio Grande, Memory and Legacy of a Jesuit Martyr, is about to hit bookstores. I asked Ana Maria what surprised her most about Rutilio as she combed through all the records that we have of him. Well, he's a remarkable man, and he's a remarkable man in his humanness and in his fragility. I found out in reading so much of the archival material and talking to people who knew him that as a very young child, I think he lived through some terrible traumas, poverty, his parents separate, and I don't quite know what the long-standing effects of it were. But then I read this very moving part when he goes to Panama, he's a young uh, Jesuit in formation, and they find him one morning kind of like sitting there in a catatonic state, and he couldn't respond to anybody. And the Jesuits didn't quite know what to do with him. Rutilio was diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia and received treatment at a clinic nearby where he recovered. But he would struggle with his mental health throughout his life. If you read fragments of like spiritual thoughts, he says, you know, as a, as a young novice, I prayed for a cross to bear. And little did I know that this was going to be the cross that I was going to be given the fragility of his nervous system. He had great bouts of depression and self-doubt. But to me, the beauty of it is he would pray so fervently to God to help him. I think that his vocation, like any vocation, uh, was a process. After seminary, Rutilio began his Jesuit education in San Salvador, and then continued his studies in Ecuador and Spain. But even as he studied the classics, humanities, philosophy, and theology, Rodolfo says he always kept his focus on the people. He always feels some closeness to the people. He never forgot his origin. He helped us to realize we had to dedicate a day, for example, Saturday, to meet in the parish to adore the Blessed Sacrament. He said, you are going to be soldiers for Christ. So at the end of every month, the majority of the men would come together to adore the Blessed Sacrament and keep vigil there, all night. That's how we all became friends. You're hearing the voice of Antonio Rivas, a farm worker in El Salvador who worked as a lay catechist alongside Rutilio when he was assigned as a parish priest in Aguilares. We were able to reach him through Andres McKinley, an American friend of his who has lived in El Salvador for 46 years and works at the UCA. This morning I drove from uh, the western town of Santa Ana, where I live, uh, through the countryside, beautiful country road with a, a somewhat contaminated river, uh, through the mountains towards uh, the area of Guasapa. We're traveling to see Antonio Rivas, a great friend who I met uh, under the difficult circumstances of the Civil War in El Salvador. I was with him 
through much of that war with uh, at the time that his daughter was uh, killed by helicopter gunships and his uh, two brothers were killed by death squads and his brother-in-law were killed by soldiers. He is a man who grew up in a typical fashion of rural peasants in El Salvador without enough money to survive, uh, little work to do, tend to uh, survive through agriculture and by hiring themselves out to large uh, uh, plantations. It led him into a conflictive relationship with the owners of the sugarcane plantations, but it also led him into uh, the meeting with Rutilio Grande, with whom he worked for approximately three years as a catechist, helping to organize the communities of the region and uh, working still with uh, peasant workers uh, now with a different focus, a focus of social justice, a focus of hope. We asked Antonio to describe Rutilio and what he was like as pastor of the parish in Aguilares. The name Rutilio Grande is fitting because he was big and his wisdom was even bigger. We called him a wise man, and when he looked at us, we wondered why. Because the way his gaze fell on us, it was as if he was saying to us, look at all the great things you're doing. He never stayed put in the parish. He would visit our communities and come to our homes, and that is how we became great friends, because he visited us and fulfilled to the letter what Christ did in his life here on earth, because he united himself with the poor. He suffered with the poor. Conditions in El Salvador had been really awful for the vast majority of Salvadorans, really forever, right? It's a 500-year-old story. My name is Eileen Markey. I'm the author of a book called A Radical Faith, The Assassination of Sister Mora, which was a biography of Mora Clark, one of the U.S. church women killed in El Salvador in 1980. I'm an assistant professor of journalism at Lehman College, part of the City University of New York. Once upon a time, uh, people who lived in El Salvador worked their land and benefited from it. Land gets controlled into smaller and smaller numbers of hands over several hundred years. There's a point at which many people in El Salvador are poor but own their land. By the 1950s and 60s and 70s, almost everyone is just a laborer. Um, So you think of people who were on their land forever, who then become tenants on their land, and now are not even tenants. They're mostly just farm laborers, meaning they have very, very little control. And by the mid-1970s, most rural laborers only had like 150 days of work a year. It's not like there's a subsistence life anymore. There's a wage earner life, but no wages. But from the outside, the economic situation in El Salvador looked like a success. The United States had been investing in manufacturing, which attracted multinational companies to set up factories there. The economy was expanding, the country was getting richer, but on the ground, it was a different story. 
there's a statistic that talks about the the real wages of the average Salvadoran went down between 1965 and 1970. So this is at a time when the Salvadoran economy, the way economists talk about that, is expanding. Uh, when Salvador is is doing well, right? They're responding to the U.S. goals around development, but people are getting poorer. Most of the people who make up that labor force live in grinding poverty, struggling to exist on an average wage of between two and three dollars a day. The land they pour their sweat into grows coffee, sugarcane, and cotton, all for export. But it does not grow enough food to feed its people. So there's increased militancy on the part of some unions, um, saying we're really getting ripped off here, we're getting poorer, our industries are getting blocked out, um, and therefore people became start to do more aggressive work. I don't mean in a violent way, but I mean in a, like, there's strikes, there are more strikes, there are more meetings. After exhausting all legal means, Ramon and others organized peasants, workers, and students in defiance of the law to end nearly 50 years of military dictatorship. There are leftist political parties, the Communist Party, some other Salvadoran parties, and they're more active in doing organizing among landless people, rural people. These people had been holding their regular weekly curriculum meeting, but today the government says it was a subversive meeting. And a similar movement was happening within the Catholic Church at the time. One of the methods um, that comes out of Vatican II is to do these small base Christian communities. It's a way of helping people become adults in the church, that there would be this space that's um, that's more horizontal, that's more equilateral, where lay people are thinking about their faith and discussing the faith with each other, which is different than all as a collective going to Mass and then receiving the Sacrament of Reconciliation and having your rosary and having your statues and having your devotional things. Like, all those are still happening. But now with this base Christian community idea, you're also talking to your neighbors specifically about how your faith plays out in your life. The neighbors would gather in someone's house and read scripture together and then discuss it. And this really caught on in El Salvador, in part because the Salvadoran church had printed and distributed a huge number of Bibles in simple Spanish, which put scripture into the hands of the people for the first time. Not everyone could read, but as long as one person in the base community was literate, they could read the word to everyone else. And if you're reading the gospel, maybe particularly if you're reading it or really hearing it in like slow, careful explication for the first time, it's a completely radical story. Um, and so you hear things with new ears in different contexts, sitting down um, on your dirt floor with your neighbors, hearing the story of the loaves and fishes when you've been hungry your entire life. The priests and nuns working in El Salvador would participate in these small group meetings. And hearing the parishioners read and discuss the gospel message of the mighty being humbled and the poor being exalted made them realize that the church's mission couldn't just be spiritual. Initially, I don't think it's resistance. I think initially it's positive focused. It's hope. It's we'll meet together and try to do some lay leadership development. We'll send, you know, the 10 brightest kids from the village to this pastoral training center, which is regional, and they'll go for a weekend class in which they study the economics of the country, or they study the gospel and they think about how that applies to what education they've been given. With the idea of training up lay catechists, and then those lay catechists will go back to the, to the parish and be able to do really grassroots education. 
To make the study of scripture and economics immediately practical, the catechist focused on land reform. They start organizing around that, saying, yeah, well, that land is fallow. Maybe we should be able to rent it collectively and be able to farm it and share the goods. Or if that landowner doesn't respond to our requests and our visits and our attempts to rent it, maybe we should just start farming it and get the food. And it's happening through organizations that are, that are filled with Catholics who've become active because of their more relational connection to their faith because they've been doing this Bible analysis and this talking to their neighbors and thinking about if Jesus lived here now, what would he say? Drutilio empowered the campesinos to organize themselves and to fight for their rights as workers. We, of course, joined the Christian communities. But Father Grande told us there was a question that we never understood. As Christians, we were accustomed only to looking down at the soil, he said. But from time to time, we should also look up to see whose shoe is pressing on the back of our necks. As workers, we also had a right to organize ourselves, to defend our rights. That is not a sin. The way we were being treated was not fair, because the salary was small and the work was heavy. But this way of thinking was new to the people. They had always been at the beck and call of their bosses. In fact, I knew nothing about rights, because I had not studied. But the people who had more advanced knowledge than us, those who had studied, heard about this and said, it is true, you have rights, which made sense. So with the right language, we went to speak with the landowners to make them see their mistake and acknowledge our rights. This is how it all began. Father Grande got in the car and came to the sugar mill to ask what was going on. We, the workers, had formed a workers' commission. But when he arrived there, he was told he could go. The problem, our bosses told him, was that we were asking for more money than we were owed for the work we had actually done. But he told them that was not true. That's not right, he said. They insisted that they were right, but he insisted all the more. It's not right. It is your fault, your mistake, because you made commitments. You promised them something and you did not honor the commitments you made to them. The solution to their case is for them to get paid. Do that and I'll leave. But ultimately, as we now know, it was this fight for the rights of the most impoverished, this challenging of the status quo, that led to Rutilio's death. A death that did not come as a surprise. It was foreshadowed years earlier. Here's a, a great specific case in point. In 1966. Back in 1966, there was a group of peasants thinking about land reform. They're found to have a copy of Pachamenteris, an encyclical from John XXIII. Pachamenteris, or Peace on Earth, was the Pope's reaction to the Cold War. It examined the proper relationship between people and governments, and it emphasized human dignity and the equal rights of all people. They're found to have copies of that. They're arrested for holding subversive literature. Well, the colonel of the local regiment said to me the other day that the church is indirectly subversive because it's on the side of the weak. Those who were arrested were often tortured, but it didn't stop there. 
By the late 1970s, the military and the oligarchy saw these worker movements as a serious threat to their wealth and power. And the United States saw it as a threat both to the industry they'd invested in, and because they were concerned that if the campesinos got their way, El Salvador could become the latest country to fall to communism. At the height of the Civil War, the United States was sending more than a million dollars in military aid to El Salvador per day. And with that money, the military and oligarchy ramped up retaliation against the workers, employing paramilitary death squads to kill and disappear anyone who was a leader in the movement. And so one important aspect of that is it's not just that people are killed, but they're killed and mutilated and their bodies are displayed. It's a really important part of the campaign of state terror, not just to cut off the leadership and to take away people who are trying to work for change, but to terrify everybody else into being quiet. Retilio's the first priest, but he's the however many hundredth campesino. Rutilio was not blind to the growing violence or the likelihood that it would claim his own life. He spoke about this openly with his friends, the campesinos. We heard it from Father Rutilio directly, and he was very clear. I am well aware that I am going to die one day, he would tell us, but I am not afraid, because I do not fear the person who might kill my body. I am more afraid of whoever kills my soul. And so he would counsel us to do the same, not to fear the person who would kill our physical body, but rather the one who would kill our soul. He would remind us of the words of St. Paul, to die is gain. And he would add, I am ready for that. Here's Rodolfo Cardinal again. They tried to assassinate in two or three occasions before March 12th. But on March 12th, 1977, Rutilio was driving with Manuel, his bodyguard. Both of them were driving to, Agu to El Paisnal, from Aguilares to El Paisnal. It's a short uh, uh, distance, half an hour at that time. On the way, they picked up a teenage boy, Nelson, who they both knew and who was also headed to El Paisnal. When they were uh, in the middle of the plantation of sugar cane, uh, from both sides of the road were, uh, were men and that uh, shot the vehicle. And they killed the three of them, Rutilio, Nelson, and Manuel. The village women heard the chaos and the gunshots, and they went to see what had happened. But they found nothing except the car. They came and told us that our pastor had died. At his funeral, there was a chain of priests hugging each other. They wouldn't let anyone near the body. The church was extremely full. I struggled. I could not get near the entrance. But I was at the cemetery, at the burial of Father Grande, because he was our pastor. It was a government-sanctioned death squad that killed Rutilio just like they had killed hundreds of campesinos before. But this was a turning point. There was this belief that, that because, it was such a, because it was such a Catholic country, um, because there are these long relationships between the church and the oligarchy, 
And those continue, right? Like people are still going to church, even if the bishop is talking about land reform. Like people are still baptizing their babies and sending their kids to the fancy Jesuit school. That's still happening. There's a belief that maybe we'd be safe. They wouldn't kill a priest, they'd kill somebody else. But each of those sort of they wouldn't do this run out during the 1970s and early 80s in El Salvador. They wouldn't kill an archbishop while he's celebrating mass. Oh, wait. Right. Oh, they wouldn't kill American sisters whose government is giving them all kinds of money. After the brutal murder last December of four American nuns. Oh, wait, they would. Right. Uh, they wouldn't kill international, you know, internationally renowned Jesuit theologians. Were shown no mercy. During the night, gunmen invaded their dormitory, clubbed them, dragged them out to a lawn and shot them. The Salvadoran Civil War and the viciousness of the reprisals that the People's Movement got, it's a measure of what the privileged will do to defend their their more, their much. And, and that includes being willing to break any sorts of taboos, including killing a priest in a country that's so tremendously Catholic. The death squad that killed Rutilio was trying to send a message to the campesinos, but it had the opposite effect than they intended. And it only spurred on Antonio's struggle for justice. His death did not discourage us, because, as he would say, keep going. Even if one day your work clothes are left hanging from a stump, you are right. That is what he said. They killed him. So we did the same thing. We saw what happened to him, but it only served as an impulse for us. We did not falter. We continued, some of us to our death, because the truth is, I thank God I am alive. My companions, all those who were delegates of the word, my brothers, all of them died. Only I was left. Nephews, all, all of them died. Catechists, they all died. There is nothing. I am the only one left. God took care of me. The day Rutilio was killed, Archbishop Romero rushed to El País now. Looking at Rutilio's bullet-ridden body stretched out in the Jesuit church, Romero thought to himself, if they killed him for doing what he did, then I too have to walk the same path. That night, Romero celebrated a mass for Rutilio and for the community. It lasted until midnight, and Romero stayed late into the night, listening to the campesinos for hours. As the story goes, the next day, Romero announced that he would boycott all government events until Rutilio's death was investigated. A decidedly political turn for a man who had largely avoided politics. To such a degree that the Archbishop of San Salvador, Oscar Romero, called on the United States to stop all military aid to the hunter. When his plea went unheeded, he implored Salvadoran soldiers to disobey their superiors and stop the killing. Romero began offering sermons that were broadcast across the country, listing the names of disappeared campesinos and calling out the injustices they faced. Three years later, he was shot while celebrating Mass. In one very strange occasion, when I met Pope Francis, Pope Francis told me that the great miracle of Rutilio was Monsignor Romero's. 
This has become a popular refrain. Without Rutilio, there would be no Romero. Or, you can't understand these two figures apart from one another. And while the parallels between them are clear, we wanted to investigate the claim further. We started by looking in our own backyard, or rather, America Magazine's chapel. Hi, this is Kevin Clark. I'm chief correspondent for America Media. Welcome to our beautiful headquarters here on the Avenue Americas. We are on our way here to the chapel. Oh, it's a heavy door. Got some artifacts from our previous office on 56th Street. Among them is, is a very poignant and important one. So what I'm looking at is a sort of yellowing framed document here. It's a letter from Archbishop Oscar Romero to Father James Brockman, who was an associate editor at America Magazine at the time. Uh, it's typed and signed. Uh, it's written in Spanish, of course. It's a little letter expressing his gratitude in the name of the Archdiocese of San Salvador and myself, I'm reading directly now, the most profound gratitude for the highly esteemed report which was sent to this servant published by you as Associate Editor of America. This important publication about the death of Father Rutilio Grande S.J. and his companions contributes to better appreciation in the outside world of the difficult historic moment that the church is living in our country and of the heroic testimony of priests and laypersons in El Salvador. Receive my grateful prayers and the testimony of my fraternal admiration, signed Oscar Romero, Archbishop of San Salvador. As my colleague Kevin Clark recounts, this letter from Romero, written just two years before his own martyrdom, is a treasure at America Magazine. One might even say a relic. It also tells us something about the impact of Rutilio's ministry and death on Romero. To learn more about that, we return to Rodolfo Cardinal. According to Rodolfo, Rutilio and Romero had met when both were living at the diocesan seminary in San Salvador, the country's capital. Rutilio was the prefect of discipline and taught pastoral theology from 1965 to 1970. And Romero had moved to the seminary to take rest after a particularly difficult assignment in San Miguel. In some way, they met together and they uh, make a friendship, a very close friendship. And it appears that it was this growing friendship that led Rutilio to petition the bishop to make Romero an auxiliary bishop, as a way to encourage his friend back into active public ministry. It also helped that Rutilio had the bishop's ear. And he said to the archbishop, hey, why would you don't ask uh, the Vatican to make Romero auxiliary bishop of San Salvador? And so it's possible to say uh, that R Romero became bishop because of Rutilio. So we know their paths intersected and their respect for one another seems evident. But it's also possible that we've overstated their friendship or the effect they had on each other. Here's Sister Ana Maria Pineda again. They were friends. Romero loved him as a brother. And Rutilio absolutely had affection and admiration for him. But I wouldn't say that because of him, Romero was converted. There are also some important theological reasons for resisting this without Rutilio, there'd be no Romero narrative. We have to see each man in his individual journey to find God or in, to be with God. And Archbishop Romero 
had been on that journey forever. To say that at the death of Tutilio, all of a sudden he becomes converted, takes away from Archbishop Romero his own journey. And Romero was deeply moved by Tutilio's death, but it's one more step in his own conversion process. And someone that I once uh, met suggested to me that maybe at that moment of Rutilio's death, violent death, that Romero had what you could call a political conversion. So maybe at the death of Rutilio, he comes to a realization that something has to happen with the political system. The beatification of Father Grande would be an important way to honor the martyrs of El Salvador's civil war. On January 22, 2022, Rutilio Grande will be beatified, a major step in a canonization process before someone is named a saint. So what difference does this make over 40 years after his death? It's a symbol of justice, of truth, and peace and the defender, the defender of the poor people. It's not just Rutilio who's being beatified. It's also his two companions, Manuel Solerzano, who was 72, Nelson Lemus, a 15-year-old boy, and Father Cosmas Pesotto, an Italian friar who was killed in El Salvador in 1980. Together, they're a symbol of the Salvadoran people who have never seen complete justice for the atrocities committed during the Civil War but who the church now calls blessed. People who preach in the community, the base community, were killed, uh, assassinated during the, those years. But for the same reasons that Rodolfo recognizes Rutilio as a saint, there are those who would take issue with his radical ideas. Not that any of that is justified, says Antonio. Father Grande's message, he says, was universal. Those who criticize his ideas do so because they don't understand them. I do not see anything bad, only the good he did, because he spoke of a peace, of a love, a lasting peace, of what Jesus instructed his apostles, love one another as I have loved you. And that's what I say, he would tell us, love one another, share. That was his mission, his love for the suffering peasant nailed to the cross, who is nailed to the sugar cane, he told us, just as they crucified Christ to the cross. And that is not fair. It is unjust. It cannot be. So he would join in our pain the pain of all the suffering farm workers who are being nailed to the cross. And he would ask us about our lives, and he would join in our pain, the pain of all the suffering farm workers who are being nailed. And so we are very much in agreement. He is totally a saint, because he lived as a saint here on earth. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This deep dive episode was reported and produced by Maggie Van Dorn, Ricardo Da Silva, and me, Colleen Dully. Our assistant producer is Kira Hanlon. Sebastian Gomes is our executive producer. 
Parts of this episode were recorded in the William J. Loeschert studio at America Media headquarters in New York under the supervision of Kevin Jackson. Audio engineering by Ashley Spillane. Special thanks to Andres McKinley at the Central American University in San Salvador, Herminia Funes, Juan Rafael Orellana Argueta, Francisco Aguiar, and the team at Radio ES UCA. And to Malachi Finn and Joel Dibble at the Marcula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. For more on Rutilio Grande's beatification, visit americamagazine.org and check out our coverage linked in the show notes. There, you'll also find links to the works of our esteemed guests. If you liked this deep dive episode, please help us spread the word about the show by sharing it with a friend. You can also support our work by purchasing a digital subscription to America Magazine at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next week.